Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're up to our eyeballs in upsettingly horny tiny night crawlers. That's right, not quite in time for Halloween. We're besieged by Bamps and boy howdy do I ever have plenty of thoughts. Excalibur number 118, New Year's Evil, was originally published in March 1998 and the creative team is Ben Robb on writing, Mel Ruby on pencils, Scott Koblish on inks, Kevin Tinsley on colors, Richard Starkings and Kiff Scholl on letters and Frank Pitteries, Kelly Kovas, and Jason White on editing. A good guy! I know it! I know you get me one! Show me how he works, okay? Hi, I'm Andy! What's your name? Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Hidey-ho! <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's something, isn't he? Welcome to a convo about an issue I've been looking forward to talking about for a while, years probably, and I want to get to it, so I'll keep my salutations brief. On the off chance that our eighth final episode is your first time, I am Dr. Anna Papard, connoisseur of all things sexy and gendery in comics and pop culture, also project lead of Sequential Scholars, yada yada yada. I am also Kurt Wagner's <laughs> unofficial PR manager and in that capacity. I have probably thought more about BAMPs than most people have, and maybe thought more about BAMPs than I've thought about most people. Um, and tend to get very excited Ow. when we when Whoa. we get to talk yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, just spitting truths today. <laughs> there are so many people in the world, Mav. That's certainly got to be true. Sure, <laughs> Moving yes. on, I am joined as usual by Mav. What's possessing you this week? I, I don't even know now. I mean, that was just depressing on a <laughs> level, and I just like, <laughs> like whatever I was going to say, like nothing is going to like. <laughs> it's like, oh my god! It's like, uh, I guess. Listen, Hi. Listen, this is a judgment-free zone. How dare? How dare? Uh, there's a there's a judgment-free zone thing I have to tell you guys off mic that I'm not repeating on our show about um <laughs> about something that happened in one of my classes today. But hi, my name is Christopher Maverick. <laughs> you can call me Mav. <laughs> I'm a teaching assistant professor at University of Pittsburgh in digital narrative interactive design department. I host this show and another show called Vox Popcast. I do a lot of work with sex and gender and race and class and comics and pro wrestling and TV and stuff like that. You know, I don't know. I'm just thrown by this whole people are not as important as not even real dolls, but just like fictional yeah. dolls in a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> listen, listen. I'm talking about people in the entire world. That's just mathematically true. Come on. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anyway, Andrew, are you ready to break up with Pete Wisdom this week? Okay, yes, but I'm not sure I'm ready to break up with who Kitty was as a consequence of her relationship with Pete Wisdom. And I'm feeling that like Sisyphus thing where you push the rock up the hill and it feels like the rock's starting to roll back downhill on her. And like, that's going to be a thing for Kitty Pride in the years ahead. And I'm like, it's making me weirdly angry. And I'm like, did I like Pete Wisdom all this time? Was I was I wrong about that? No, and, and you, I honestly you were wrong. You were wrong. You, you didn't. Yeah, you you. You, you you did not like Pete Wisdom. You were not wrong. <laughs> I said some things. <laughs> the fa- anyway, the, the uh, fact that she's wrong here does not make him right. <laughs> oh, and by way of introduction, I'm Dr. Jander Demand of St. Jerome's University, Sequential Scholars, and um, a book called The Claremont Run, Subverting Gender in the X-Men, which is now back in stock in Canada, arriving in an alacritous one to two months. So if you order right now, it might arrive by Christmas. People should buy directly from University of Texas. It'll come fast. It's a good price. Just You can get the book if you want to, people. Get out there and buy yeah. it any way that you can. <laughs> I got my digital copy this week. It was very exciting. Exactly. Uh, which again, <laughs> Andrew graciously offered to just send me one, but I'm like, no, no, I want my my like I I was so excited that uh, that I was getting like a copy from the publisher. It's like we have this enterprising scholar doing things that you might be interested in based on your on your <laughs> history. Would you be interested? In? Yes, yes, I would. I <laughs> want to see what this this young man has to say. <laughs> oh and that probably Young counts man. towards andrew's stats so it's good that's the bright way to go about it getting back to excalibur we are joined this week by a really super outstandingly exciting guest who i posted for this episode like two whole years ago and i couldn't possibly be happier that it's finally coming to pass the pod is overjoyed to welcome jonathan alexandratos welcome jonathan thank you so much i'm happy to be here I, i'm very eager to dig into this issue and all things toy and all things Excalibur. It's funny, as y'all were talking, I, I uh, was drawing parallels between the series that I followed most closely, which is Generation X. When y'all are talking about the mm-hmm. like, ooh, this this relationship and that one's like, oh yeah, I have a parallel to that, but it's just I don't I don't know as, this one as well as you y'all do. We have we, talked we can about talk some about Gen the, X. Hey, yeah, some of the parallels yeah, we're ready. because <laughs> Ben Rob Ben Rob was an assistant editor on that book, who is the author ah. of this comic. So there are some interconnections. But Very cool. um, we will get into all of that. Let me introduce you first, and I'll come right back for your origin story, Jonathan. So Jonathan Alexandratos is a playwright, essayist, professor, and toy historian in NYC. Their first book, articulating the action figure essays on the toys and their messages, was an edited collection of scholarly work around action figures and dolls. Their second book is a cultural study of kids meal toys and is due out in 2024 with McFarland. You can see Jonathan on the big screen as well as a toy expert in Billion Dollar Babies, the true story of the Cabbage Patch Kids opening nationwide this Black Friday. They have also been on PBS and the program Story in the Public Square discussing the academic textuality of toys. Jonathan's award-winning plays, many of which incorporate toys into broader narratives about family, both blood and found, have been produced internationally. They teach at Queensborough Community College and Sarah Lawrence College. Jonathan still seeks a good deal on the Fleetwood ghost rider and we're rooting for you we're thank all you. For you yeah let me know <laughs> let me know so jonathan i mean that's just like such a list of amazing cool things and i want to talk about as many of them as we could talk about in an hour and change 
and we usually do origin stories in the second and we could certainly do your comics origin story but I know you're just as fond of talking about sort of like your toy origin story and how some of your scholarship on that and your lifelong interest in toys sort of emerged so I don't know I'll put the ball in your court if you want to talk comics origin stories you can but I'm equally happy to hear you talk about the origins of your love affair with toys which direction would you like to take it in yeah let's do toys 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 sound uh sound good to me awesome and it's i mean it's a fairly simple origin story because it's been fairly consistent my whole life i when i was a, a kid if i had to put an age to it you know maybe six but it's in that sort of nebulous area where I, I don't quite remember the number but i went to kb toys with my dad and and i remember the experience of picking out a toy for the first time at least in my memory before that toys had been bought for me and i mm -hmm. i certainly loved those but i remember the experience of picking out my own for the first time and feeling how amazing it felt to start to build a world using my own agency and because of that i i just instantly fell in love. I mean, I wasn't necessarily framing it that way then, but at the time I certainly was aware of how a new action figure would fit in with the ones I already had and how that would grow the kind of story I was telling. That was obviously a very fluid story and 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 everything and and as a kid would do, but I loved that that feeling and and I loved thinking about how an action feature that one character had would interact with the others and that sort of thing. So from that point on, I was hooked. In seventh grade, I did a report on action figures for one of my classes. They gave us this cool. assignment where we had to make a report about anything we wanted, but it had to involve all of our subjects. So it had to involve science, it had to involve English, it had to involve math. So I just did toys and did like a geometric breakdown of an action figure. I did like the scientific oh composition God. of the plastic. I did, you know, the in, in English class, like the, the card backs and the way those are written and um you know it, it just it just hooked me and you know i never really left the toy box it just sort of evolved with me as i as i grew and that's why i still love thinking about it today because sometimes i'll i'll write these essays that it, that attempt to and, and hopefully do dive deeply into the sort of academic nature of a toy and some folk who are kind of outside of conversations like the ones y'all have and the one, ones we have, they're kind of like, well, it's just a toy, you know, who cares, right? Uh, you should just be playing with them. And it's like, well, I am playing with them. This is a version of play. Like it's a play that, that I'm honored to say has kind of grown with me over time. And, and I love that. Uh, I, I love that sort of companionship. So that's kind of the the broadest form of the the story. I think on a day to day level, toys also kind of give me permission to be imaginative. They give me mm -hmm. comfort in the sense of you know it's been a rough day. I just want to sit down and transform a transformer. It, you know, it's <laughs> it's that kind of thing. So they obviously have a lot more than just one singular meaning. But yeah, I mean they're they're really important to me and they they kind of seep into almost every avenue of my life i mean let me get you to expand on that a little bit more i mean i love the concept that you're bringing up related to you know sort of academic work on toys being an extension of that childhood play i'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit more like do you consider the study of toys to be a form of play like how do toys inspire you in your academic scholarship on toys absolutely yeah i do i do consider academic exploration of toys to be a form of play because I think of the 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 work the writing as as play.
playful. I, I mean, I, I that's not to that's not to take away from it any sort of seriousness. In fact, I think that adds to the level of seriousness. Ever since humanity's earliest days, we've been playing. I mean, play has been an integral part of our lives. So I do think that when you when you sit down and you ask questions about how this this sort of stream of queer theory over here could flow into the world of action figures and you start to pick up a, a, a toy on card and you're, you're looking at the language on the back and you're looking at the accessories and you're looking at the, the sculpt and you're trying to unite it with, let's say in this example, uh, some vein of queer theory, you're having fun. I'm having fun with that because I, I do think it's fun to discover things and I think it's fun to, to dig and discover that theory that you do enjoy and, and you do genuinely invest time in willingly to, to sort of decode as best you can. I do enjoy the process of finding that in an action figure, almost like an archaeologist might dig up some sort of a discovery or something. I, I do think yeah. it's a lot of Yeah, I, it just, I remember talking to you a little bit about this ages ago, and it just really resonated with me in terms of, I don't know, I always think of that Foucault thing as, you know, if I've told my cultural story convincingly, it's because I told a good story, you know, which always reminds me me of yeah certainly some of the ways that you know playing and, and toys sort of affected my love of stories and contribute to to some of the ways that I think I continue to continue to be telling stories about characters <laughs> with, with a, through an academic lens these days but um but let me ask you a little bit more about it in terms of I mean you brought up queerness and sort of gender as aspects of of, of your work in in your lovely description but let's drill down on that a little bit more like if you were going to speak to someone who's sort of not aware of this academic study of toys? I mean, what are some of the misconceptions about toys and about play that you find yourself dealing with that, you know, your work is trying to address? I think the first and foremost one is that toys are text. And I don't think we often talk about them in that way. I, I talk about them in that way as toys as text, but I don't think that they typically get presented that mm -hmm. way. And, and what that lets us do is it lets us say, well, have you ever gone to class and read a book that you're really interested in or a play? Have you ever sat down and listened to a song and when you broke down those lyrics, you really got into it even more? Have you ever had the experience of watching a play or a movie and it's it's you, you sat with the plot of it and, and you really personally connected to that. You can do all of that with a toy as well, as long as you kind of explore the different ways in which you can read it. And that's what toys mm -hmm. as text kind of lets us do is, is it lets us say, you know, what if in addition to all the books on a syllabus, one of those items that you had to get was a Marvel Legends action figure. And it was your job to read that toy the same way you would read one of those traditional books on that list. What would you come up with? What would you analyze? How would you dig into that? And I think that there's myriad ways, but I think it's all untapped. I think kind of in the same way, maybe comic scholarship was untapped for a very long time, too long of a time. And, and now folks like you obviously are are digging and and uh i think it's a it's a marvelous thing but uh yeah i think that's the that's the kind of big thing it's it's that people don't instantly get why a toy should be in a classroom and i think i and i understand that because a lot of us as kids were kicked out of classrooms bringing our toys to class yeah so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh 
with that kind of relationship established, then it takes a little bit of work to say, well, if you notice that a particular toy is making a specific cultural impact, why not bring it into the classroom? Isn't a classroom a great place to start to to dig into the how and the why of of that particular toy? And and, and of course, you know, classroom is not the only space, but I'm using classroom as kind of a stand-in for any sort of academic space of research and analysis. So, you know, obviously you don't need a classroom. You could do this uh, sitting at your desk at home too. But I, I just sort of have that as kind of a, a stand-in for the act of academic exploration. So I, I think that's probably the, the the big one. You know, so many people are caught up on the value of toys. How much can I sell this for on eBay? How many of them are there? You know, which ones they make, that kind of thing. And that's all well and good, but we have beaten that horse to death and we are going to continue to do so. And I think that that's actually fine because people are interested in it. But I think that we need to add in an element of depth not breadth to this conversation because we got the breadth you can go online and find checklists of toy biz x-men figures you can go on ebay sold mm-hmm. listings and figure out how much those things are worth spoiler alert not much and then <laughs> you can but there's nothing that that's there's there's little right now that's going to take you deeper than that and i don't even just mean in the creation of the toy because some of that stuff is starting to come out now with with various toy documentaries that i think are great but in terms of just meaning what do they mean you know what does it mean for people to in the case of that cabbage patch documentary i'm in beat each other up over a cabbage patch doll what does that culturally Mm. mean and i think we really need to sit down with questions like that it's certainly something i've been thinking about a lot more since reading your work and having some combos with you and just certain certain interactions with toys have really taken on greater meaning to me just as soon as you sort of refrained it for me like thinking about this time that I, i don't really collect action figures but this time somebody sent me a nightcrawler action figure and how uncomfortable i felt taking it out of the box and posing it (laughs) given all of the sexy erotic stuff i've written about nightcrawler and then touching this figure made me feel really really weird and i'm better about it now he sits on my desk and i'm less weird about it but like gosh like i did not feel like posing his tail after you know writing all of this stuff about the sensual impact of nightcrawler's tail because just touching it and having this tactile thing just felt super different to me or like things like you know I remember I put all my My Little Ponies sort of away in the attic for 20 years and when I moved back home to help out my parents sort of a few years ago I did take them out and clean them up and just the tactile memory of touching them and interacting with them just brought back sort of like a flood of emotion and so many and I remembered all of their names and it's like these memories that are buried in those experiences of play and unless you interact with those objects again those those memories and those feelings and those emotions sometimes stay buried right and yeah i don't know i just it's it's funny how we devalue those things when they're clearly so important you know right exactly and and by the way i think about that conversation we had about your nightcrawler often and i i love that (laughs) fact about you i think that's awesome and and because i and i love that about the my little ponies too because it feels 
and I don't want to like put words to, to your experience. So like, obviously correct me if this doesn't yeah, resonate, yeah, yeah. but like, it feels like there's, there's a little piece of you that's infused with that yeah, sort of yeah. plastic vessel. And you, you kind of recognize that it's, it's still there. Like it's, it's waiting for you, you know? And I, I think that's an exciting thing about toys too, is, is just there, there are these vessels that are capable of holding us and and our emotions and the intangible things about us and when we see them again of course it's familiar because we're there like we we know that our ourselves are are in those little plastic things I sort of want to ask you about connections between comics and toys in terms of something like superhero action figures. I'm not quite sure how to pose the question without it being a super leading question. That's okay. <laughs> but, I'll go wherever you know, lead I'm just, me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just interested to hear you talk a little bit about, I mean, what are some of the ways that our relationship between sort of, yeah, like an image of a superhero on a comic book page, how might that change when it becomes an embodied thing when it becomes a toy something you can pose and play with and obviously i'm not saying that my nightcrawler toy experience is going to be typical of anyone i'm a weirdo bracket affectionate but <laughs> but still i don't know i mean some of the stuff that i've read having to do with action figures and sort of the way that bodies even change when they become an action figure in terms of like becoming more muscular a lot of the time sort of following various trends in culture and obviously they've changed in different eras in response to some of these cultural trends but i don't know take it in whatever direction you want mm -hmm. thoughts about superhero action figures or what make make them interesting or, or worth looking at i think it matters when you get to touch those bodies and you get to control yeah. the narrative in in a way that you can't when you're reading on the page so when you see let's say a, a batman in a comic, you can appreciate that maybe that Batman is drawn in a particularly muscular way. You might appreciate the fact that 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 Batman is having some interaction with Catwoman that seems vaguely romantic or explicitly romantic or whatever. But that's that's kind of on the page. So I feel like there's a little bit more distance, and I feel like there's a little bit more acknowledgement of the fact that what's on the page is the creation of someone else and you're sort of there to absorb that story not not make the story necessarily though you could if you decide to write fan fiction or something and you've got kind of headcanon about it you, you could do that but i think that the the more typical kind of response in the moment is just oh let me let me read this written story and, and absorb it with the action figure you can feel those muscles you can feel that sculpt you can pick up your Catwoman, and they can do nasty things that you're making them do like that was mm -hmm. you know my introduction to sexuality as a kid was just like making my action <laughs> figures bang and being like i don't know how any of this works but i'm assuming it's something <laughs> like this uh, and uh yeah thanks knoxville tennessee sex ed which is non-existent but uh but i think that 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 experience when you're alone and you're you're creating the story using these bodies you're, you're again you're using them as a vessel there for that plot that narrative that's coming straight from your desires your interests your whatever it is you want to happen that imbues it with something extra that i think think that the the comics don't necessarily have the image doesn't necessarily have or at least does not hold as easily as the the figures do in, in their three-dimensionality and in, in, in their um, in the way that you can you can touch them and manipulate them in all sorts of, 
of ways. Yeah, I'm interested in sort of the play of solidity and fluidity that we could talk about both with sort of a visualization and a comic book and an action figure, because I think both of those properties can apply to those objects in different ways. And it's just it's fascinating to think about from the perspective of sexuality. And yeah, definitely something I would love to have more time to think about more, which is why it's so fun talking to you. I could keep talking about this toy stuff all day. Oh my maybe God. We'd better. Same. I mean... Maybe we'd, we'd, we'd better get into the issue <laughs> and um, I'll come right back to you for, for thoughts about evil bamps. Oh, well, there's so much juicy <laughs> stuff in this issue. I'm really looking forward to it because in the issue, there's like so much toy history that's actually in this. Mm. And I, I really am looking forward to getting into that because everything that that BAMF does in this issue is, is I think, straight out of a long history that we can talk about. Awesome. Okay, let's get to it. We'll do the issue summary and we'll come right back to you for some of those thoughts. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along in the pod. We definitely wouldn't call your bestie a pet as we'd previously established. We'd also definitely keep an eye on your bestie if you specifically asked us to and not let him get kidnapped by BAMF esque demons just to prove we're better friends than almost everyone in Excalibur with the possible exception of Kurt Wagner. Here's a plot summary. Excalibur number 118 opens on a view of a cute, innocent Banff doll who quickly becomes much less innocent and much less of an inanimate doll. One Banff becomes many before they converge on their target, Lockheed. Meanwhile, Kitty and Kurt are training in the Muir Island Holosuite in appropriately piratical fashion. Kurt presses Kitty on her strange mood since returning from S.H.I.E.L.D. and eventually learns the truth. That Kitty developed feelings for a boy her age that has her questioning her relationship with her substantially older boy friend Pete Wisdom. This valuable introspection is cut short when the Banff sabotage the program, sending Kurt and Kitty plunging into the seemingly very real water at the mercy of sharks and tentacles. Pete Wisdom stops by just in time to rescue them and receive a cold shoulder from Kitty. Elsewhere, Megan, who can talk to trees now, is comforting a dead tree. She tries to stop Piotr from cutting it down. <laughs> maybe tree. it's about... I, Dying this, tree. This, 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 a little bit. This... This scene, this scene, man. Anyway, <laughs> she tries to stop Piotr from cutting it down, and maybe it's about the tree, or maybe she's just, in the words of the notoriously emotionally mature and insightful Piotr Rasputin, just an emotionally <laughs> confused empath. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mischief continues to afflict the other residents of the island, while Pete finally forces Kitty to talk about what's going on, but as they're having it out, Kitty's Banff doll comes to life and tries to take a piece out of her. A melee ensues in which the team debates how to send the Banffs back to the well at the center of time. Then it suddenly doesn't matter because guess what? Nightmare is here and we'll be dealing with more of him in the next issue. So Jonathan, as we've established, I've been waiting years to talk to you about this comic book. So hit me with your first impressions. We got into it a little bit before the break, but the floor is yours. What are you particularly interested in talking about? Well, I mean, let's go in order. So if you start from like page one, you've got this great (laughs) moment where the, the text of the story is just invoking Christmas, right? Twas a fortnight past New Year's. Mm -hmm. And it it just seems Mm -hmm. as though right off the bat, we're starting in this place of, hey, y'all remember those sweet toy memories you might have had around the holidays when something might be wrapped under the tree. The Banff in that image looks like he's kind of just burst out of of wrapping, but I even though I guess he's in a bed or something, but uh, it it looks like uh, a newly opened present and we're being asked to kind of locate ourselves in in sweetness for a moment and then just right on the next page it it hits us with the the disruption of that when the bamf is clearly just losing it and going psycho and i i I thought that that is so in line with the way in which 
killer toys are so often presented as taking something sweet and innocent and just totally corrupting it. And I I think in, in those two pages alone, you get what the BAMF is meant to do. But but for me, you know, I'm reminded of some some toy history in which plenty of people have basically done the the same thing in which toys have been cast as not just some sort of demon but a demon that's coming for your sweetest most innocent memories or feelings and i thought a bit about where that comes from i i have a bit of an explanation for that or a theory about that which i can get into now if that's something you want me to do get into it get into i want to talk about it so one of the th- like if we just think about kind of the way the 20th century took toys and acknowledged or or sort of interpreted or warped a certain creepiness into them. So in 1890, Thomas Edison invents his talking doll. Are y'all familiar with this? I am not. Okay. I am not. So so 1890, (laughs) Thomas Edison has this idea to take a little phonograph and just put it inside of a doll when basically that would make the doll talk. But the problem was that the phone recording something on a phonograph at that time that was that small basically required the the voice artist if you want to like voice actor whatever you want to call him mm-hmm. to literally yell these lines into <laughs> a recorder that would then press that into a phonograph and so you would get these actors who would be doing the jack and jill rhyme or perhaps even creepier they would do the bedtime prayers that that kids would do but they would be yelling these things loudly into phonographs (laughs) and so when you got the doll you wouldn't hear you know jack and jill go down a hill like you know a normal person might say it you would hear it cranked up to not not even 11, oh like God. 12 or 13, and literally just <laughs> one word at a time. Jack and Jill went down a hit, right? This kind of thing, which oh if that God. doesn't make your ears bleed, I don't know what will. So right away, you know, you see a doll that I, I think when you look at it is inherently kind of uncanny i mean it's just this this kind of blank expression and it's speaking these sort of butchered prayers or or rhymes i mean it's hard not to leap to a sort of creepy feeling with that but then when you get into the early 1900s something else happens that further actually establishes uh, dolls plush toys especially as evil so 1907 father michael esper is giving his last sermon and Father Michael Esper is a beloved preacher. He has a, had a wonderful career. Many people supported him. And his final sermon is about this object that is destroying our culture in the U.S. And that object was the teddy bear. And the reason oh, that okay. for Michael Esper, the teddy bear was destroying America was because girls were playing with it. And when mm-hmm. girls played with a teddy bear, they weren't playing with a baby doll. And when they weren't playing with a baby doll, they weren't learning to be good mothers. And that's what a baby doll was supposed to do. A teddy bear couldn't do that. So a teddy bear, therefore, is destroying the <laughs> cis-heteronormativity of America and is, is, is maybe kicking out some sexism to boot. And we can't have that. So this sets off a moral panic that ultimately carries on for, for a few years after. And by the time you get to the 20s, the teddy bear has been 
softened to contain uh, features that are a little bit more human. So when the teddy bear starts off, it looks a little bit more like a bear. By the time you get to the 20s, the teddy bear takes on some of those bigger eyes and the cutesier features that at least maybe will allow, okay, fine. Yeah. If, you, if you're worried about your girl not associating that with a human baby, well, now it looks a little <laughs> bit more like one. Okay, fine. Like, I mean, all of this is heavily problematic, but that's the reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in the middle of, of that sort of transition from 1907 to the 20s, in 1915, there's a horror movie that comes out, The Golem, which of course is about the golem, but it kind of really just warps that story. So the golem in Jewish tradition is a creature assembled from inanimate parts that comes alive. But in the tradition, it it can take on the role of like a helper or a, or, or a beneficial entity of some kind. In the horror movie, 1915, it starts off that way. But when Golem doesn't get love, he starts to go on a murderous rampage. And that's where the horror starts to come into it. So you can kind of see, I feel like these elements from 1890 with Edison to 1907 with Esper to 1915 with this Golem, you know, inanimate object coming to life killing people these kind of set the stage for uh 20th century in which toys are not to be trusted and the ways in which they're not to be trusted is exactly the way this bamp doll is not to be trusted in the sense of you might think that's a cute object you might think it's nothing dangerous at all but actually it contains this potential for real destruction. And of course, you know, the first victim it goes after is, is Lockheed, who, you know, sweet little Lockheed, who we all, I think, you know, it's it's like, it's like a puppy, you know, we, we, we we're on Lockheed's <laughs> side, like we don't want anything bad to happen to Lockheed. I'm a little confused if Lockheed's a pet or uh, or like an associate, yes. but like, I guess this is <sighs> an ongoing topic. Okay, yeah, well, good. I'm glad <laughs> I, it's a note for today, too. I want to talk about that a bit today, too. It, I, I don't think this comic is sure whether <laughs> Lockheed is a pet or not. This, this specific Issue. That was the sense I got. Yeah. So then basically just just getting back real quick to the to the history of this, you go through this stretch of time where from, you know, 1929 with the Great Gabo to 1936 with the Devil Doll to 1945 with the Dead of Night. These are all films that actually translate this kind of panic into a horror into horror movies, but all of the evil dolls in question here are ventriloquist dummies. That kind of becomes the popular thing for for that period of time. And I think that that kind of continues through into the mid 20th century. And while you can find certainly evil toy stories pre Chucky, I think Chucky in 1988 kind of is the iconic evil doll that we think about. You know, I, I when I think of Chucky and, uh, and Chucky kind of talking like, uh, kind of a Brooklyn New Yorker in the way that the the, the Banff dolls kind of do here. I think they're clearly reaching yeah. for a little bit of Chucky vibes in that way. But with Chucky, you know, I, I think it kind of makes sense for Chucky to to be the horror object because in the 1980s, there's such a deluge of toys. I mean, toys are just out in ways that they were never out before because the, the the FCC is deregulated. You can make commercials that are 30 minute kid shows. And out of that, yeah. you just get toys constantly. So I think Chucky kind of says, well, you know, with all this stuff going into kids' bedrooms, is anyone really looking at it? Could any, could any of that be uh, a Chucky doll? Well, yeah, maybe. So that I think speaks directly to the, the sort of commercialism of the time. And then when you get to um, 
to something like the Banff doll here. I mean, it strikes me that the Banff doll exists in the comic sort of amidst in our world a whole sea of just x-men action figures you know you obviously we've talked about the nightfall but there's just so many the, the merch for x-men and and i'm including excalibur and gen x and all the other you know threads that we like x-force in this there there's just so much stuff and i think that that's sort of a an interesting parallel you know the the beloved action figures that we have by the time we get to 1998 and then you know the the idea that well if you've ever wondered what an evil one looks like here's the bamf doll in the in the comic yeah. that year and and obviously like there's there's more to say i mean we've only gotten through the first what three pages um I but, know, oh my God. Uh, yeah we're gonna move this slowly through all of it no i'm kidding but <laughs> We'll be done in a few days. No, it's not an episode of Cerebro. We're not doing yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll <laughs> talk as long as we can. <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah. I mean, but but so it's it's all to say, you know, if nothing else, those first few pages, the first three are just so rich in terms of what they're speaking to in terms of toy history that, you know, I think one could reasonably expect that the rest of the, the sort of Banff doll's presence in this comic is equally as rich. So much so that for me, the relationship stuff was was sort of tangential to this whole thing. I was just kind of like, well, okay, that, that's yeah. that's fine. I, I want more. I want more toy stuff. But that's of course going to be my reaction. <laughs> oh my god, that's fascinating. I mean, yeah, I definitely want to get more into the specifics of this doll, like it being a Banff doll and the connection to Nightcrawler and the themes of maturity related to Kitty that the doll kind of deepens and crystallizes in this issue. Because I do think I won't say that it's handled sophisticated or perfectly but it certainly is this story about kitty being stuck between does she want to be the age that she is is she like bitter about her lost childhood does she want to be with pete in this more adult relationship and to have the bamf doll as this evil presence right after she has the conversation with nightcrawler about what she wants it's just there's a lot going on here that i think is interesting and it is one of the reasons that this issue really stands out for me from this run but let me pick up some impressions from Andrew and Mav, and we can get into some of those those questions a little bit more. Um, I haven't heard from you much today, Andrew, so I'll come to you for it. What was your reaction to this issue? Did did it interest you <laughs> as much as it's clearly interesting, Jonathan and myself? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think for, for me, this is a very visually interesting issue um, that was doing some really kind of cool things again. But I, I found where we, we talked before about some of the more experimental um, illustration styles that we've seen in Excalibur in the last 15 issues. Mm-hmm. Um, this one felt pretty polished to me. Like, like I thought the artwork was advancing the story whilst creating a lot of sort of dynamism. I don't think the story was necessarily there to the extent that I wanted it to be. And some of the writing was a little clunky and some of the scenes were kind of what was the point of this? What was accomplished here? kind of thing and the characterization was again not great for a lot of reasons but i would argue this is one of the best visual issues that we've had maybe in the last like 20 yeah i think there's like a good balance of sort of like that excessive experimentalism but like with storytelling though like it's not like difficult to read like a lot of the excess is serving exactly. the story since it is about this doll that turns evil and like the excess of that works mav how are you feeling about it similar to andrew i love ruby's pencils on this I think the art style that Ruby brings, and we've talked the last, I think it's been on the last three issues, I think. Yeah, since 115. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about how sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, there's a lot of experimenting. There's a lot of, you know, am I trying to do my own thing? Am I, you know, 
trying to be Joe Mads? Am I trying to be the image guy? What's going on with, with, with Ruby? Here it clicks. This is the perfect story for the mix of humor and horror that like kind of goes well with his artwork. Uh, Koblish has good inks on it. And a couple issues ago, I was like, oh, we used like a whole bottle of ink on this one. And this doesn't have that problem. It's not... <laughs> It's not overdone. It is visually just sort of right. And it works with Rob's story. And it creates kind of a everybody working together. Um, I should include the colorist too, uh, Kevin, Kevin Tinsley. Everyone's sort of working together to sort of create something that is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's some very good visual storytelling. I'm happy with it. I don't love everything about the issue, which we'll talk about, but like, overall conceptually I, I can't be mad about this i mean it's a solid issue in a comic that has become known for its tonal inconsistencies and there are some inconsistencies inconsistencies in this issue as well but as a whole you know solid a minus yeah yeah i i mean <laughs> yeah i uh again it's an issue that stands out to me and i i can't tell whether it's just because i'm interested in the, some of the thematics here i mean uh, one of the things that I really struggle with, and really maybe y'all can help me with this, is like the, and I struggled with this too when I did a thread about Bamf dolls for Claremont Run, trying to balance sort of the mm. sexual implications of this doll and like what it means. And of course, the Bamps as characters are notoriously horny and specifically horny for Kitty. Uh, this is mm -hmm. a through line of their appearances and it gets worse in the next issue. <laughs> like it gets kind of uncomfortable where they're like kind of rapey in a hmm. way that is. Mm. But um, because, okay, so I mean, some of the history of the doll, we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before. And again, go look up the thread on Claremont Run. But, you know, like we have the Bamp well, doll associated. Yeah, yeah, it is a time to talk about it. So, I mean, we have. Because we. Yeah. Kind of punted on it last time, and I think this is yeah. where it actually matters. So. It does matter here. So, like, we do have the Bamp doll associated with sexuality because of that. Uh, Kurt doing the Burt Reynolds Cosmo pose Reynolds. in Uncanny mm -hmm. X Men number 168, in which the Bamp doll is positioned in front of his crotch. It's like a figure of exchange between himself and Amanda. He has a doll mm -hmm. of her as well. And then later, we see a number of the young X women having a doll. So, Kitty has the doll. It gets exchanged between Kitty and Ileana and Jubilee, and Kitty has the doll back now in a previous issue of Excalibur Jubilee sent it back to her uh, with a little note and so Kitty's had it since then so I love the incorporation of like Kitty still having it but we also saw that presumably there's another doll which this story kind of forgets about but there's another doll that we saw Kurt and Amanda still having within the context of their relationship in Excalibur so I think the balance that I like to strike with it and the balance I tried to strike when I wrote the thread for Claremont Run is that it can be a sexualized toy but it doesn't have to be like reductive in that way like it can be a toy that evokes the complex bonds between characters and i don't think it's reducible to a single meaning i think the fact yeah. that it's a toy of nightcrawler it symbolizes sort of the broad-based acceptance of that character and that's why it becomes this comforting symbol and it symbolizes so much of what nightcrawler means as the soul of the x-men too the fact that he would become and i'm gonna say mascot even though that's a term that kurt has taken issue with but you know sort of the idea that the cute comforting representation of the mutant message is a toy of nightcrawler like does mean something it's like a deliberate choice to have this this figure of the bamf doll keep coming back and to see it here become sort of like this evil thing Obviously, it's playing on the associations we already have with Nightcrawler, too, and his cuteness. But yeah, I don't know what to do with the sexualization of the Bamps as characters 
it's it's been creepy a lot of times including mm-hmm. in more recently like in jason aaron's wolverine and the x-men where you have the bamps teleporting around <laughs> like a very pregnant kitty and having an obsession with her there as well and i also found that extremely creepy I have you're a, our toy expert jonathan yeah. so i would love to hear you you weigh in on it like what did you make of sort of that sexual aspect of this story i i have a, i do have a thought about that and i think that it comes down to the way in which uh socially speaking the word toy in the english language Mm. has has a double meaning that i would say is one of the most opposite of double meanings one might imbue into a single word so toy can mean a kid's toy it can mean a plush toy it can mean a transformer a gi joe or barbie it can also mean a butt plug so like that meaning of toy we culturally are going through this where a lot of the the language that we use around toy play you know there's play which is a thing that kids will do in a sandbox and then there's foreplay which is a thing that kids won't do in a sandbox and that double meaning i think actually materializes in the bamf doll because it does have that duality of yeah this is a kid's plaything and it is sexual you know rapey I, I would say you know in this in this case and it it just it strikes me that that this toy read this way acknowledges the cultural sort of meaning of the word toy in ways that are here horrifying and i think probably not ultimately fair to either meaning of the word toy because i don't think there's anything dangerous about either of those meanings it's just context you know that's all it is and obviously age appropriateness and everything like that either meaning you're talking about the the toy the kids toy versus sex yeah exactly right you know i i don't like i don't I don't mind that that word is used both ways. It's just, you know, I don't think that inherently is dangerous. I think just the, the context around and, uh, and the usage of uh, can be dangerous depending on, on yeah. how. So that's kind of my, my read on that in the broader sense. I mean, it is also noteworthy that like, if you go back to Esper, this is exactly what Michael Esper was afraid of, which is that, toys will somehow rob women of their innocence or whatever you know i mean this is all like esper's language this is it's you know not great yeah yeah, yeah. but um their domesticity more so than their innocence though right yeah yeah well but purity too i mean it's pure yes they're pure that's better yes i like that better purity rather than innocence because i have weirdly conflicting but i i think i'm on the same page with you but i want to ask you a question so you you talked about the split between the adult meaning of toy and the adult meaning of play with the kids meaning of toy and kids meaning of play i tend to not think of them as opposites i've done some some work with these kind of kind of thing as well the sexualization of childness that we do in sort of western culture and i don't mean i don't mean pedophilic I mean, the fact that we use toy the same way, right? Or the, or the fact that we, I don't know, that we sexualize play in general. The reason we have baby dolls is to teach a motherly lesson, which is inherently sexual, right? The reason we do, I mean, I know people don't think of it that way, but that's where the babies yeah. come from, right? So I, I think it's not an accident that we use those words the same way. The reason we call a butt plug or a vibrator a toy is because they're fun and toys are fun. And, you know, I'm playing. I'm just playing a, a grown-up game. You know, yeah. it's the kind of thing that we that we do with it. And I think that I'm getting I'm trying to get 
to not get too semiotics ish here with the signifier like logic. I think that we make those arguments because we are symbolically affecting the same kind of thing, just sort of an adult's idea of fun versus a kid's idea of fun. And where I think it becomes weird is in the evilness of it, right? So I don't think it's weird that the Banff dolls are sexualized because the idea that the idea that what's fun for baby Ilyana or even 12-year-old, 13-year-old Kitty is different than what's fun for 25-year-old Kurt and Amanda. So I'm okay with I'm okay with them using it differently in that I assume that they're two physically different dolls. If you're having sex with your Tickle Me Elmo doll, that doesn't affect my ability to, to <laughs> yeah, use it, right? Sure. The weirdness is because their Tickle Me Elmo dolls look like a literal friend of theirs. That's the weirdness of yeah, it. But like, yeah, yeah. It, but, but like the, the I can't <laughs> control what you do with your doll in your house and it shouldn't affect my meaning of it. Where I think it becomes weird is in the demonization of it in the chuckiness of it and i think that that is more about our fear of what it means to apply this sexuality to what is ultimately a child's thing right there is something weirdly sexual about chucky about literally chucky from child's play even though he's even though he's he's more murderous than sexual but he's absolutely horny absolutely and then similarly megan from this year megan is weirdly phoebophobically sexy intentionally and it's supposed to make you uncomfortable like that's kind of part of it there's a naughtiness about it and i think that that is i don't I don't think it's so much an accident as I think we are playing with the uncomfort we have of the association between the the two kinds of play because it's uncomfortable to think of, hey, wait a minute, we're doing something sexy with this little kid's thing. Yes, yes, and because uh, I'm with that. I, I think that, the, mm-hmm. that my yes and to that is I think where the discomfort sometimes lies socially is in the assumption that there's a binary at play here between those two meanings of the word toy, meaning that you are either a kid and doing the kid version or you are an adult and mm-hmm. you're doing the adult version. So like like one of the things that I know a number of my friends run into who are furries is people who don't know anything about what being a furry is, assuming that, oh, you must be doing the adult version. When in fact, being a furry, it there many of the furries I know are, are queer. Many of them are asexual. Many of them have no association between being in a fursuit and doing anything sexual at all. So, but it's this, it's this insistence that, well, it, but this must be classified as either, is this the adult fun or is this the kid fun? Yeah. And that I think is the thing that society has an issue. I mean, that's why, that's why in something like the 40 year old version, uh, which I hope is a dated movie now it's probably dated when it came out it that's why that joke of uh of the dude you know having action figures as a grown man Mm -hmm. is there because it's like you can't be doing the kid version you should be doing the adult version and the Mm -hmm. reality is you can as an adult do both so many legos (laughs) yeah sure Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, there's just, there's something, and maybe this is a way to bring you back into the conversation, Andrew, in terms of the origins of sort of the Banff doll 
as as a creature you know and not just a doll like from the kitty's fairy tale story in which kitty imagines the bamp dolls within a story that she's telling to iliana and then she imagines the dolls as in love with her so that was actually her idea like originally which is strange and then kurt encounters the dolls again in the 85 cockroom nightcrawler series and the humor there is sort of like they're basically like smurfs but they're like horny smurfs I don't get the same like <laughs> aggressiveness from those characters and those portrayals that I get here because they're not evil. They're like mischievous, you know, and there's like a destabilizing element to their hoardiness, but it's just not malevolent the same way that it is here, even though uh, some of that humor I think does read as dated in those in those older stories. But I don't know. Did you just have to thoughts? acknowledge it? Because yeah. someone will point it out. Smurfs yeah. are horny. Well, like, okay, that too. that too. That <laughs> <laughs> too. Never forget. Sorry. Very much so. Oh, yeah. Did not yeah. mean to. <laughs> Many robot chicken episodes devoted to that fact, yes. did not mean to minimize that fact i apologize <laughs> but yeah i don't know andrew did you have thoughts about that aspect of it you know like how does it change when they're sort of a manifestation of kitty's story versus yeah. these independent characters that i guess they've become here no i think that i think that's really important i i would make a kind of probably stupid comparison here there's a movie from the late 90s or mid 90s by ate dijon called um drop dead fred yes which is about your yeah. um childhood imaginary friend coming back and, and just wrecking your life because because mm-hmm. they haven't identified that you've moved on from that relationship. I think that's what's happening here. I, I think when I think of action figures, or, or action here, figures, I should say. No, that's what I did say. I was all right the first time. <laughs> <laughs> I think of action figures, the component that I think is really interesting is um, thinking of them as, as sort of cosplay. Mm. The idea that these characters have these adventures, but it's your voice, right? It's it's mm. your imagination. So having Kitty at this point in time when she's considering this uh, adult life that she's kind of been Warren ellis into... Uh, and, and wanting to walk back a little bit i think having her be confronted with the voice of her childhood you know what i mean through mm-hmm. the bamp and, and yeah it's an angry voice and it's a violent voice and some of the top voice but i get the sense that it's like that kind of horror movie concept that mav was talking about um that idea of um you know y- you left me behind and therefore i'm resentful for it. i mean the sidri made that exact argument two issues yes. ago right yes exactly so, so I think there's a lot happening there in terms of um, the Bamps forming a dialogue between Kitty and her younger self. And that I find deeply interesting, though I'm not sure the story yeah, is yeah. up to engaging with that. Well, that's what I was sort of I getting just, at, too, because, I mean, it's again, it's significant, too, that we have the conversation, as I mentioned earlier, between Kitty and Kurt. That's like referencing the past mm-hmm, yeah. of them having these piratical adventures, you know, together in the danger, which is not that that's something that they did all the time, but still it was a pirate story and Kitty's fairy tale, so it's hearkening back to, to some of those things. And Kitty, of course, along with Ileana, was in the 85 limited series, which mm-hmm. brought back the Bamps. So this is like a history that we're sort of drawing on here, even though it's in not necessarily a super precise way, but still that context is there. And then Kitty mm-hmm. is clinging to the doll when she's having the fight with Pete, you know, when she's about to have yeah. the breakup with Pete, right? Right. Just to say, that's, that's awesome too. That you know, in hearkening back to the 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 Golem movie that I was talking about before, the 1915 one. I mean, that's what sets the Golem off too. Is is romantic rejection? So mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that idea kind of comes up in these these horror tales when it comes to inanimate objects as well. 
which I think makes it all the more scary. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that I wish is that, I don't know, I think where it's making me sort of sad is just the reductiveness of it, though, because, again, I like to think of the Banff doll as sort of like a queerly complex sexual symbol. And I mean, I did when I did a talk about super sex for uh, Frederick Kohler's class um, ages ago, I sort of concluded the talk by talking about the Banff doll as this symbol of the ways characters become, can become loci locuses of desire, loci, I should have desire, I should say, in really complex ways. And like I told the story about, you know, someone made me a Banff doll because you can't buy them. You have to have, you have to make one or someone makes one for you in like sort of an informal capacity. So a friend that I knew through like erotic Nightcrawler fan fiction made me a Banff doll and sent it to me. <laughs> and then thinking about the experience. As we all have that. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> this was many years ago. Um, but the experience of having that doll, it wasn't necessarily that it made me feel close to Nightcrawler. It made me feel close to my friend, right? And so you think about right. the complexity of connection that happens through a doll like that. And I guess just sort of the reductiveness of it being sort of a machismo, rapey thing here, I think maybe disappoints me in terms of my own view of what that doll means. But I mean, I don't know yeah. what I'm expecting, though. I think you're not wrong in the analysis, though. I think that... I think that what makes it work is something you said at the very beginning of what you just said, which is it's a complex symbol of that sexuality, yeah, yeah. right? Which is which is sort of mixing in with with, with what Jonathan was saying. This is this doll. It's not just a sex toy. It's also not just a child's toy. It's also not just a murder rapey thing, right? It is many things. There is multitudes because that's how toys work and that's how imagination works. And that's how being, I'm going to pick an age for her, 21 works for, for Kitty, right? The reason this story works for me so well, and, I, and again, I said solid A minus. And I'll, before we end, I'll talk about the stuff that I don't like. I spend a lot of times on our shows complaining, and I mostly really like this. I love that Rob has made me hate Kitty in this issue in a good way. <laughs> and it, it's good writing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say he is doing very good writing here because like like her complaint basically is I want to be safe and I want to be able to be a kid again to not deal with the fact that I almost cheated on my boyfriend. That's her complaint. Like she did something wrong and she's confronted by it on it by Kurt, who does it in the most positive big brothery kind of way he possibly can. Like hint, hint, go talk to, P to, P to Piotr, you know, because and she knows that she can't because she knows that there's a hypocrisy in it and he's trying to not call her out but he's trying to walk her through this and what she wants to do is play with her you know she wants to play with her her pet dragon or her partner dragon depending on how you how you view Lockheed but she wants to play with Lockheed and hug her doll because she does not want to deal with the fact that she has done to Peter Pete wisdom the thing that Pete Rasputin did to her and I you can argue different levels but I don't think that matters mm -hmm. in her mind right now. I think yes. she knows right. that she was wrong and she's trying to not, even when, when, when Pete wisdom confronts her, he's like, you know, tell me what you did. Tell me what it is. And she's like, you don't want to know. And he's like, the hell you, I don't like, I mean, yes, he's being kind of machismo to Pete wisdom there, but, morally you understand where he's coming from because he knows something went down he knows that there's another guy even though he, he or he's afraid of it right and she's basically confirming it and he knows that she did something that she feels guilty about and he knows that he deserves to know in that situation he handles it wrong because he's a horrible person but like the morality of this is not simple and 
to use the Banff doll to use Kitty's place in this world to sort of illustrate that morality. She's 21. You're supposed to make stupid mistakes when you're 21. That's what being 21 is. Like, I mean, realistically, right? Like, even she says, well, I was a guy my own age. Pete's like, Pete Wisdom's like 26 or 27. He's not that much older. She, I mean, he's older than she is, but it's not like he's 50. He's also in his 20s. He's older in his 20s. Because yeah, I think we've like established there's like a 10 year yeah. gap. I think that that's been said. I don't, it, but see, even here, I'm not sure because the Rigby, like the guy that she hooked up with is also like, he's not 16. He's also an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., right? Pete was an agent of Black Air. The, the age gap is nebulously weird. It's, oh, it is. It's definitely. not, it's, yeah, it's not it's not so long as to it, I, like I don't think you're supposed to read this up as oh well Pete's obviously too old so this boy is automatically better. That's not what this is. She's using excuses. She's trying to find some way out of the fact that she's maybe not ready for a forever relationship with Pete Wisdom, and that's kind of okay. But it makes her feel dirty and like a failure because she doesn't know how to process that relation those relationships yet. She's twenty ish years old, twenty twenty one, and she's had you know one serious boyfriend before this so it's hard there's like there's a queer reading that i want to bring to this that Mm -hmm. you know in terms of the doll being (laughs) a symbol of exchange between iliana and jubilee and kitty hugging the doll while she's breaking up with her heterosexual male boyfriend i i I would love to bring that reading to it it's not intentional in the comic but i mean it's just that like i I just wanted to underline it in terms of the diffuse sexuality of that doll because you could be like oh she's hugging it because the doll is nightcrawler it's like no the doll is Ileana in like another and, way, but even right? a, but in but even I mean I don't think that's wrong either because assuming Rob knows that there was a relationship because I I would argue and we've talked about this before I think we've talked about it before on the show we've certainly talked about it in private I believe that Ileana and Kitty did sexually experiment in as much as you know the code's going to allow that story to exist and Ileana's dead now so she can't have Peter because of the betrayal and their history she can't have Ileana because Ileana's dead and she doesn't belong with pete wisdom and she knows that and like i i think that there's a lostness of it that i think the iliana reading is fair well yeah and again underscoring jubilee sends the doll back to kitty after iliana dies and doesn't need the doll Mm -hmm. anymore so it is like Mm -hmm. specifically tied to that anyway 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 jonathan i'll come back to you for some more for more thoughts about sort of these gendery sexually aspects if you want and then we'll go back to and then we'll go to some final thoughts and talk about the stuff that we didn't talk about but i did want to get give you a chance to respond to all of those things that we've been saying yeah so if you would like to do so floor is yours i do because there's a thought that kind of comes up as i'm listening to to you talk and and even more so anna when you talked about your experience of getting your bamf doll made me think about the way in which this comic actually i feel makes us the reader into a bamf doll ourselves because if you look at the perspective that we have in many of these panels, it's either way below the human characters or on level with the Banff dolls. I'm looking at one of the end pages there or maybe above them. We're not, we're not really on human level in a lot of these panels. We're on Banff doll level. So I wonder if in there, all of that horror that we're talking about, the way in which Banff dolls can start off as this sweet thing that you were talking about, and then here change on a dime to thinking about, uh, you know, how they would sexually assault or you know, be just awful to one of these characters. 
or just be otherwise violent. There, there's a little bit of an indictment in that that's kind of also saying, yes, but you too, comic book reader, you are also sitting at home thinking about what you would do to these people and, and treating them as if they are just sort of your toys, more or less, because they, in some cases, literally are. Some of these characters have been made into toys. So I, I just, I find that a little compelling when I just look, think about just the, the art and the use of perspective in this uh, in this issue. You know, if, if we're anything, we're we're them. So whatever it is that they possess, they kind of ask us to to look at that within ourselves. And so, so I think that that, you can extrapolate from that sort of any reading that these possess as being also something we possess going back to something we talked about in the beginning of toys as vessels well if this toy is a vessel who put it there yeah (laughs) oh i love that i was thinking about the terror too of like sort of being reduced to like a toyetic or a a childlike state as well like being something that we're sort of sutured into through some of those perspectives like like that ray bradbury story about the carousel that turns you into a child yes but um (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, anyway anyway let's let's go around and do some final thoughts give everybody a chance to to circle back to something because i'm sure there's other stuff from this issue uh coming to you first andrew anything that you would like to circle back to i think one of the things i thought was really interesting from the writing perspective um, on the dialogue was that there was a moment where i thought there was something really cool kind of happening which was in the conversation between um kitty and kurt um when kurt surmises that what kitty's going through is more guilt than shame and I thought that was really interesting. And I thought it kind of underlined a lot of um, sort of what Kitty is going through in this particular instance, that she didn't do wrong. She just feels bad about what she did. And that really compares nicely to the, the Colossus breakup from Uncanny X-Men. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to say on it other than I really liked it. I, I think it's something that kind of frames the entire issue. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice bit of writing as well. How about you, it's Matt? Final thought? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the good moment of the situation because it's Kurt notices that that she feels bad he can't directly relate to it and this is subtle right he tells her he he has a suspicion he knows that she on some level cheated and she doesn't want to talk about it like he clearly knows something happened and he and he handles this by not by saying um you're wrong or not even by saying you know i can help you because he doesn't really know what it's going like depending on how you read it I, i think some people might read it as he cheated on Amanda several times, but he doesn't. They have an open relationship, even in Uncanny. So, like, it's not the same, and he doesn't know what that's like, what that's like, but he knows that Piotr does, and he's trying to very carefully hint at that to his his little sister. I, I, I like that. Where it falls apart for me is, I think, Rob wants it both ways with Peter and Megan when she, when I mean uh, that that entire thought thing where it's like so now I'm led to believe that Peter isn't really interested in Megan unless he's lying to himself but I don't think he's supposed to be lying to himself here I think he's supposed to be the, I think we're supposed to read this as though she's overreading his feelings and like the entire storyline between Peter and Megan here just I, I'm over it so much in in a way that as much as I love the love triangle between Brian, Kurt, and, and Piotr, I'm sorry, and Megan, <laughs> um, the one with um, Piotr, Megan, and Brian, it's just, it's just, it doesn't work and I don't care and it just feels messy and <laughs> probably because Megan's so inconsistent now that it doesn't, it doesn't help. But my other really brief thing is, once again, I don't think Rob knows 
what Doug Locke's powers are. Oh God, it was so. <laughs> I mean, it's going to come up last... in the next issue too about the nightmare well, that he has. Because I was just reading. In last one. issue, last issue he drowned, I guess. But this issue, oh, a rock's going to hit me, and I, I know. I'm, I'm going to get flattened. I mean, again, assuming he doesn't know he's Warlock now. He knows these phalanx. He knows that he can transform. You can be flat. It's okay. Last yep. issue, you had your heart ripped out. You can handle a rock falling on you, dude. Yep. Like, <laughs> I don't, I just don't understand what's going on. I don't understand. Like, is it just supposed to be humorous? Oh my God, I'm going to become a pancake. What are, you, what are we even doing? It, it, like, it just, everything about that just made me go, oh, come on. And I, and I, and I hated that. So that was my. That was my actual final thought. <laughs> nope, I totally in agreement on you. The one thing I'll just underscore quickly about the Piotr and Megan thing that I find just so irritating. When this flirtation was first brought up, I said something about, listen, I don't hate the impulse here. Megan can grow as her own person. And that makes me buy into the Brian relationship a little bit more. That distance is maybe important. Except for how is that being presented? Everything is from Colossus's perspective. We get none of Megan's interiority. Yep. We even get extensive thought bubbles from Colossus is explaining her emotions to us it's misogynistic mm -hmm. trash and i'm fucking sick of it and like this scene in particular was just terrible terrible yeah. terrible terrible on that level and i just are didn't want to like him? split hairs about i know we might not yeah. be supposed to trust him no, no i have, think we, we are have, though but we have no counterpoint we, to trust we don't him. have awful. her perspective yeah, yeah. because if it's we're not supposed awful. to trust him we need a counterpoint to that and there is no counterpoint he is the narrator of her emotions so like if this mm -hmm. story is about building up megan's character it is doing completely the opposite this is some of the worst writing of the character that we've seen throughout the mm -hmm. entire comic it's what made me get the a minus <laughs> from the like yeah. it, it like it's awful. It like literally. I mean, when you were reading the when you were reading it at the very beginning, I just it's just like even during the synopsis, I'm just like, ugh, just this is so. It's, it's really bad. it's gross <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. pointless. And I don't and it doesn't it doesn't even serve Colossus because it doesn't make me feel better about him. It makes me feel like what do you even like? Like he barely knows her. What are you even doing here? And I guess at the end he's just like, oh, I should. He even says I shouldn't have opened up my heart. Oh wait, so were you lying to? us yourself i don't know what it's supposed to be doing the story about megan is a story about colossus it sucks yeah, yeah. and this and the story about colossus also sucks it's not it's yeah. not interesting yeah. and it's, <laughs> it's bad not even worth it. i know <laughs> i'm gonna do a letter real quick because i want to give jonathan the last word about the comic so uh, we had a number of fun letters on this issue this one is from jonathan starling and just in terms of where this book is heading in terms of pete wisdom i thought i would choose this one so dear sword strokes this is my first letter to a comic I picked up issue number 115 and loved it. Never ever get rid of Ben Robb and Mel Ruby. But please get rid of Pete Wisdom. Please get rid of Pete Wisdom. Kill him. Tuck him in a pocket universe. Whatever. Just get rid of him. He's the only thing keeping this book from being the best X-related comic there is. He's self-centered and jerk and he smokes. Heroes do not smoke. Plus, real heroes don't have so many vices. They don't have to be perfect, but they need to be good. I mean, come on. Who'd miss him? Don't even try to say Kitty would. No way she's that dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and the editorial response uh, has an interesting comment about just because Pete is self-centered doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings. Wolverine smokes, by the way. And if you knew what's lurking in Captain America's closet, well, we won't go there. Anyway, I don't know. What Wolverine didn't were. smoke anymore by then. Yeah. Wolverine no longer smoked by now. And He's I don't wrong. know what they're I don't know what they're going for with the Captain America line, but I'll leave yeah. it as is. <laughs> I will come back to you for the final word, Jonathan. Anything else from this comic that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I know when we were talking about 
before the pod, you had an interest in talking about the ads. So we can certainly talk about that a bit if you want or anything that you want to circle back to. Uh, yeah, I had uh, one question, one micro point, and one macro point. I could do involved very Go quick. for it. The question is very small. Douglock, is that mm. the same character as Slayback? Because in the action figures, there was a there was an action figure of Slayback who looks a lot like Douglock, and I had no idea if that was supposed to be the same person. Do you know? I don't know I anything about Slayback, Slayback so... Yeah. Oh, this guy! Wow, I forgot. Uh, oh, no, they're, they're not oh, the they're same different. person. Oh, they're different. Okay, alright. Gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Alright. <laughs> I for I I forgot. Oh wow, that's a yeah deep cut. Yeah, there was a slayback action. Yeah, figure? yeah, he's a cool figure too. He would uh, like extend his arms and you hit a button on his back. It was a pretty cool figure. Wow, I'm looking it up now too. <laughs> um, yeah, no, not the same. Not the same character. I forgot that character existed. Okay, but not the same. And I am astounded. It was Toybiz. Yeah, yeah, Toybiz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It is. It is a fun action figure. It looks like him, right? I'm not crazy no no yeah like there yeah there are there are similarities they yeah they are he is not the same he is um more he is uh, essentially again we're we won't get to it before our our series is over so he is essentially warlock with doug with doug ramsey's memories mm. and they don't even know exactly what he is that's he's a mystery that they never managed to solve he's warlock. yeah i saw that from the little <laughs> flap that's at the beginning of the the story there the, the explanation of doug lock that was uh that was interesting, very interesting. Mm-hmm. i i also just just very very minor aside when you were reading that letter uh anna there's a there's some some blink love in there and i'm just there struck is. by that because blink is like all over the generation x letters also and apparently mm-hmm. has a huge fan following so uh, yeah and the editor and the massive, editorial yeah. response here too is like another blink yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly blink is fascinating in that they resisted i mean they resisted the the fan pool of blink for a decade yeah it's impressive yeah, yeah. like like there is like people bet like that character existed to be killed off. Yes. She was, you know, she dies in the storyline that she's introduced in and she is, you know, she is an Uncle Ben. She is a Alex to be put in her refrigerator. That's what she's for. Mm-hmm. The fans fall in love with her and Marvel spends a decade not giving in and then finally they're like fine she's an exile you know yeah <laughs> so so it's it's amazing that they held that they resistant resisted the pull of bringing her back because in today's world she would have had uh she would have had her own limited series six months later she has a great action figure <laughs> from the time mm-hmm. fabulous actually she's got like a portal that she can jump through yeah, yeah um yeah but uh i have it oh sweet yeah it's, it's a good one the small point megan at the end of this story makes a really good point when she says when she's like listing off the the people that they fought and she's like and now it's plush toys i actually like that perspective on this because for her it seems like these are not as weighted as as they are for some of the other characters it's more it's mm. more a sense of like well and now we got to deal with this thing like we're not safe anywhere it's not it's not so much that they're toys it's just that they're objects that are not supposed to do this and uh for her they that she's just like oh give me a break and i think she's got a point um the bigger thing and i i think that, that this can you know briefly kind of just just touch on on ads too is you know the, the reason that uh, we had mentioned ads before is just that i i do kind of consider them part of the comic when i read them i, I mean not part yeah. of the story mm-hmm. but i just consider them part of the experience but the thing i was thinking about with regard to the cutesy nature of the bamf doll versus evil bamf doll is there's 
also something that we do creatively with that over and over again. And I think back to Cabbage Patch because with Cabbage Patch Kids, they were sort of meant to be, I mean, though some would say they look kind of ugly, the sort of cutesy version. And then right as soon as those become a hit, Garbage Pail Kids come out and those are the the evil versions or the ugly versions Mm -hmm. or whatever. The Art Spiegel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So there's something to that. There's there's like a fascination when something kind of gets too cute or, or maybe too too wholesome. Some of us kind of want to come around and just well play with that a little bit because I'm not even like I'm not mad that there's garbage pail kids. Like I think that's that's great. Like it's just there's a that's a that's a form of play too. I feel like is how can we kind of mutilate this a little bit and and, and make it into something that that kind of strips away that wholesomeness. Uh, and what does that do to the experience? I, I kind of like that uh, that process with regard to the ads i mean that that uh, this doesn't really fold it into that conversation but it's just to say that it is cool to read a story about merch that is periodically interrupted by yeah. requests that you buy merch and and you know i'm thinking about like my comic had the the farley's root uh, snacks in it it had a twix ad in there x-men computer game sega something called cyber swine which i have no experience with but i i, I just i i don't know this that those ads hit different in this comic because the story was so merch uh, centered as it was. So yeah. uh, I just, I just made note of that. Yeah. The ravages of apocalypse, a quake total conversion. <laughs> yeah. This is not the game of quake. You once knew the X-Men have taken over and now it's a whole new game. And of course, like reminds us of the blink letter at the end. It's all connected. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. <sighs> This excellent knight, who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Jonathan, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Just like the toy history you gave us and the perspective you gave us was just, no one will ever have a smarter discussion about this comic book. I feel confident saying that. I'm putting the stamp on it now. (laughs) I'm glad. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of whereabouts that they can find you. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they be looking out for you and what past, present, future projects should they be looking out for yeah so first and foremost i just want to say thank you so much for having me on i'm a big fan of the podcast i've listened to the previous uh episodes uh oftentimes without even having read the issue and and y'all just give me so much to to think about and work with and i feel like i have such a fulfilling experience even if i'm not as familiar with the uh the comic as as you do so thank you for that as far as finding me online i'm on tiktok if you like the toy history stuff i do toy history tiktoks dances with toys is the handle there so if that's interesting to you Follow me on TikTok. I'm on Facebook, just Jonathan Alexandrados, and uh, Instagram as well, toy underscore circus. Uh, otherwise, uh, just be sure to see uh, Billion Dollar Babies, the true story of the Cabbage Patch Kids. That comes out Black Friday this year. Uh, it's a better alternative than going to a department store and harassing employees. So please do it. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's an excellent plug. I am very much looking forward to checking that out. And thank you so much again, Jonathan. My pleasure.
Next, it's Nightmare 2 Electric Boogaloo as Nightmare returns to menace the team with their, you know, nightmares. Feels like we've done this before, but I guess that's just what happens when you've been podcasting <laughs> about Excalibur for like three mm. dang years. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or our website. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur, you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via x slash twitter and blue sky at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week plus more fun extras thank you mav and andrew for another fantastic combo thank you jonathan for opening the toy box with us thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thoughtform music for a truly epic theme song play us out that was a marathon but a completely Ooh. worth it one oh that thank was you great so much everybody.